We are here today on Crew Call with Oscar-winning filmmaker Emerald Fennell and Oscar-winning cinematographer Lena Sandgren, who are talking about their latest movie, the gothic romance Saltburn from Amazon MGM. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. So, Emerald, welcome. Thank you. So, I once heard a story about the late Anthony Minghella, and this was secondhand, and I don't expect you to know this story, but when he made the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is based on the Patricia Highsmith novel, it was his way of sticking his nose up to the upper class that had surrounded him during his youth. <laughs> and I was curious with Saltburn, because it is a wonderful dis uh, deconstruction of the classes and of kind of, we think he's the working class guy. Talk about how all of this was on your mind. Do you know, it's really funny. I I've kind of always felt that this was a love story. Uh-huh. And so, um, and so the thing for me that this, that I, I guess I was so, I think I was so keen to interrogate was, was this kind of, um, was, was power, I suppose, and how it relates to sex and how it relates to love. And, and I think that, you know, the British aristocracy is a really great way of kind of interrogating power dynamics because it's very kind of clearly stratified. It's very um, complicated and labyrinthine and it's sort of designed to have lots of sort of tricks. And um, and I suppose I'd been thinking a lot about the kind of, you know, the kind of books and, and films that I love so much, which tended to be gothic and they tended to belong to this gothic genre of of um you know the british country house um and whether that was the go-between or brideshead revisited or atonement or the remains of the day you know that these like these restrained restrained love stories and i guess the thing that i wanted to do was unrestrain them and make something that felt close to their feeling of total infatuation total scorched earth infatuation, a kind of cannibal love. And so in many ways, the kind of class dynamics in it and the house are a sort of vehicle, a familiar place to discuss feelings that are, I think, quite universal, I hope at least. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So coming out of Telluride, some classified it as a horror film you see it as a love story, yet gothic. For me, I love the noir elements of it. And I'm curious, when you're writing this, you've got these wonderful turning points. For some writers, there's always this rush of, oh my God, I got to get to page 30, or I've got to get to the turning point. But you take these wonderful time with the characters. Can you talk about that push and pull? Did you ever feel that stress because you have a multitude of organic turning points throughout the script. And I'm just curious, like, did you feel the rush to get to the next point? Because you do take your time with the character. Like, there's just these great dialogues. And a great, and, and just a great stretch where you just let them, kind of a getting to know you thing between, you know, Ollie and the family members. Yeah. Well, I think, oh, thank you so much. I mean, honestly, 
the thing for me was it needed to feel like being there that summer. You know, I guess the idea of the movie is that is in many ways it's about it's about loving something in spite of yourself, knowing better. You know, all of us know better. All of us know that these people are never going to love us back. All of us know that these houses are completely impenetrable. But yet you take one look at Felix and what are you going to do? You take one look at Archie, you know, but you take one look at Farley. What are you going to do? Venetia, you know, Elspeth Catton. You know, when Rosamund Pike holds a kind of iced coupe glass and looks you in the eye, you're going to do whatever she wants. <laughs> and I think that's the, the pleasure of the movie. You know, the pleasure of the movie is that thing of us falling in love just as much as Oliver, us wanting to belong in this place, in, in even against all reason, because we see the human debris. We know that it's finite, not just because of the way that poor dear Pamela is treated or even Farley or the girls that you know, Felix just runs through and discards at Oxford. We we know that this is a finite thing. And yet we still hope, as Oliver hopes, that they might love us back, that we might be the ones that stay. And so it's really important to have that sense of that summer, the summer that kind of ruined everything and made everything. And so you have to take your time. And I think, but as with lots of things, when the unravelling happens it happens really fast because that's what happens when things unravel in life, I think. Ollie's influence on the family, talk about that. Because you would think a family like this wouldn't have the wool pulled over their eyes with an outsider such as him, but yet they're so seduced by him. Can you talk about that? Totally, but I think that's the wonder of seduction, isn't it? Yeah, because it's how you deliver the thing that people want, how you package things, and that's you know what me and Linus are doing. Also, we're packaging something in order to seduce, in order to kind of seduce an audience, or to repel it, or to re make it feel turned on. Sorry, if it, it, but you know, as, as a sort of like group of people, I think, and so anyone can be seduced. But what's really fun about the Cattons is that they are normally the seducers, which which leaves them open to, it leaves them, yeah, it leaves them open, it makes them vulnerable. They're the kind of spoiled dog sleeping belly up. You know, they, it wouldn't occur to them that they were mortal. And so that's the kind of, that's the fun. And I think that that's the thing about, Ollie is that he's enormously effective as a, you know, his story is very appealing to them and to us as an audience because we believe, we believe the story that the film is telling us at the beginning too. We believe him. So if we believe him, then it's credible, I think, that they do. And it's, you know, it's part of why making a film about seduction and the ways we seduce is so fun. Can you talk about the reveal here with Ollie? Mm. One of the most glaring turning points is when we see him and he's talking to Felix and we know that he's lying about Farley and what Farley saw with Venetia and with Ollie that night. That was like, oh my God, Ollie isn't the guy we think he is. But before that, 
there are some hints. Can you talk about that? Just meaning of that Ollie's just not right. Totally. And I think that's the fun, again, why playing with genre and such a specific, super, super specific genre like this kind of British country house gothic with this, you know, the familiar narrator with the familiar framing narrative with familiar places, their country house, Oxford, you know, all the characters of people we feel like we know from other places. And the thing about this film in the script, in the in the filming and then in the edit is that Oliver tells us who he is in the first breath. He looks us dead in the eye and he says, I wasn't in love with him. And then we show the most beautiful man who ever lived through the most erotic gaze, the most erotic romantic gaze. And we know that that's not true. And then we see flash cuts of the unraveling, the things that happen in the first minute of the film. And then we forget because the framing narrative is often the thing that you forget once you get back into kind of 2006, 2007. We see Oliver standing outside Felix's dorm room, smoking, watching him have sex. We see him pretend to know what a palissy plate is while he's also reading a catalogue about palissy plates and underlining it and making notes. So it's what we decide to leave to one side ourselves. It's the little inconsistencies that we as an audience, as we do in real life when people tell us inconsistent stories, it doesn't go with the thing that we think we're receiving. So we sort of discard it. But Oliver is a liar from the very, very beginning. And that's a really important thing. And I think that's why it's it's always fun to watch this, the film, I think, a second time is that it's so clear from the beginning. And, you know, when we talk about twists with films, I'm always a bit, I'm, I always get a bit kind of, I'm not sure that, this film, I, I'm not sure that there are any twists in the traditional sense in the fact that we know something's wrong. We just don't know precisely what. But for me, the only thing I really desperately wanted to preserve was Ollie's parents. And so that to me feels like the only the thing that from that moment on, we know really what we're dealing with, even if we can't quite bear to admit it but that was the only thing for me that needed to feel like a real shock that he actually came from a really nice middle-class family you know in a beautiful house with parents who loved him and he recognized that there was going to be nothing less sexy than coming from a happy home and nothing less appealing to the sort of vampires of of the kind of of, of saltburn I guess and then how did the development work? Did you take it to Margot Robbie? It was packaged with the talent and then you kind of had distributors line up, you know, such as MGM? So actually it was, um, the way I work is I finished the script. Nobody knows what I'm working on, not my team, not anyone. They don't know what it's about. They don't know the title that I handed in. And I say like, this is the thing I'd like to make if you think anyone would like to make it. Um, MRC, the amazing studio MRC and Lucky Chap came on board pretty early. We put everything together. We were in prep, um, uh, ready to go. And then uh, I suppose the kind of movie at that point then went out to, you know, distributors and, um, and yeah, and, and we just found really amazing partners in MGM and Amazon who were just so, they just loved it from the get go. They completely understood it. And they really supported it just, um, yeah, in every conceivable way. It's very lucky to be able to work with, you know, I've been really lucky. I've just got to work with, honestly, the best 
best people, most supportive, brilliant, talented people. So it's been amazing. So Linus has done, your cinematographer here has shot these amazing movies, American Hustle, No Time to Die, Babylon. What made him the right choice to shoot Saltburn? Hmm. <laughs> he's just staring at me. Um, because he's the best in the world. And I don't think I'm being overly effusive. I think he is the best in the world. And so when Margot, the wonderful Margot Robbie, who is the producer of this movie and who'd worked with Linus before, she called me and said, you know, have you have you met Linus? And to be honest, I didn't think Linus would even have the time to meet with me um, because obviously I'm such a fan of his work. And but we did meet, we met on Zoom um, and Linus had read the script. And I think, you know, from that conversation on, it was just so exciting because mm. it just felt like all of the things, all of the conversations we were having, not just from the kind of like aesthetic point of view, but just from an emotional point of view, felt really um, consistent. It felt like we were totally talking the same language. And the, and what was so amazing is that, yeah, the first, one of the first things that Linus asked, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, for you Linus, because I, I'm probably misremembering it, but he said, what are, the, what are the words that you think of when you think of this film? Um, and I said, you know, I don't know, I can't remember what all of them were, but one of them was vampire. And I think that was the thing that we really, you know, all of the references, kind of Caravaggio and Hitchcock and, you know, Merchant Ivory, all of those things felt very much um, connected. So it was wonderful. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, to me, I was very happy to, to you know, to be asked to have a meeting with Emerald. And I think that is the moment when it happens, right? It's like in those discussions you have initially about a project and uh, Emerald's uh, Promising Young Woman was, uh, I, I absolutely loved. And this script I absolutely loved. And I think what attracts me especially is that she's so original, you know, she has a very original uh, way of thinking about stories and how to tell stories. So I, to me, it's very unique, uh, this script in how, even if it's based on sort of the traditional Gothic sort of idea, I feel still it's like so many, so many moments in this film that, that we never seen before, you know, that is, oh, um, I, Hands right? down. It's very unique. So, so that was like uh, super clear to me that uh, she's just the most brilliant, amazing director there is. And uh, so I think that was a mutual sort of understanding also. Of, also, she's kind of, I think you're kind of old school in one way, like we're like classic filmmakers, like in that sense, actually, that you're not like looking at other others to like, see how to do your film you're starting with a story within yourself that you want to tell and then you uh, write a script that is completely original and then you make the film in the way the script asks you to do it sort of or but you like how you want to do it so and 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 in that way um i really connect to that type of of, of working too where you where you really just start from scratch each time you do a new film and not sort of make something that you've seen, like try to copy something you've seen, or you you just start from scratch, like as if you haven't done a film before, I think. Can both of you talk about the visual aesthetic here? 
you know, you've got these smoky shadows. There are scenes where you're very specific about the shadows and the lighting, and then it is brilliant color. It's not the lawn that we see in the movie Atonement. It's brighter. It's brighter. The countryside is brighter. What's interesting about all of your colorful bright scenes is the fiercest things happen to go on in them, like <laughs> such as Felix's death. And can you talk about that, the balance of that? When you got smoky and, and, and shadowy, and then when it had to just put on the brights, put on the brightest color you can. Well, I think it's a kind of, it's, it, again, it's, it's an emotional conversation. It's where are we emotionally in the film, you know, and, and so every, you know, every scene has its own feeling, has its own kind of, you know, its own purpose, whether it's erotic or, you know, or sort of frightening or alluring. So I think, you know, it, it's a kind of constantly evolving conversation, but at the same time, I think what I think both me and Nina's what we love doing with this film is, you know, making things that were quite expressive. So there's an enormous amount of pathetic fallacy in this film. It, I think the thing that is in life, often the most distressing moments are re recalled in kind of a sort of blinding clarity, you know? And so it's, I think it's sort of important that, that you know, you're able to have that awful moment of Felix's death feels so wrong it feels so wrong in those in that context and um and I think that's the wonderful thing about pathetic fallacy I think when we think of that as a kind of I don't know as a as a as a trope we think of like it's raining when the funerals happen which of course that is the case in this film but there's an also kind of like an inverse thing too where you know when somebody is seducing somebody it's a kind of Nosferatu silhouette you know or or you know, when sort of when Oliver's getting his feet under the table, it feels hazier. It feels kind of more violet, more, you know, he's it's everything's a little bit more relaxed. It's I mean, I'm probably not articulating it very well, but I think that's the thing about that's why, you know, why you make a film is that you control the world. And we as an audience understand that there is a kind of um that this is in, it is a presentation, and so you so you can let the visuals be kind of emotionally guided. If that makes sense at all. Definitely, I I agree. That is like emotionally driven, but we chose a language that was more expressive, that fitted more the style. And through many discussions, you know, you come to different conclusions of the visual sort of storytelling, but um. I feel like the seduction it lies also in that that we, for example, outdoors were very sunny and romantic and, and sort of hot and sexy. At the same time, the house was full of some sort of dark secrets and it, and 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 ju juxtaposing as well those images, like Emerald said, I think to an extent is brilliant. I think it was a re really both both scenes that are. Uh, kind of emotionally hard were in bright sunlight, but as a general tone as well, it was sort of this romantic summer and you feel like something 
uh, erotic is going on between the characters and at night it just gets moody and spooky and but you go from scene to scene obviously and design the scenes and i think our uh, language sort of had a little more painterly qualities than traditional maybe i mean some cinema is more painterly obviously like for example german expressionism but but i think um we kind of also composed oftentimes in the scenes almost like theatrical setups like in in shots right and then we sort of leave for the audience to uh, decide if this sort of well composed and perhaps uh, suspensefully or 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 um sort of um uh, delightfully <laughs> sort of lit image that looks something that you want people to be attracted to at the same time something that could be offensive happens or or you try the audience in how much you can take but we just give them a sensual image that is quite amazing to watch and then you have to decide for yourself sort of where to draw the limit <laughs> and um i i mean I, I loved working that way with this film it was very it felt like it was it, it was grounded in the really in the characters um how how that tell tell the story this way i think absolutely and i think it's just there's something so wonderful to be said for you know i think the shepherd's pie scene after felix's death the bre- the the lunch is a really good example of something that is you know that is incredibly expressionistic we we are divided between two it's a scene divided in two the first is in you know is sort of is in normal daylight and the second part is all red and even though you know we see the curtains are red we understand that it is you know we understand that this is sort of something that has happened in the real world it's still so emotionally clear you know it isn't it is a it, there is a kind of before and after and the unraveling that happens in the red is you know it, it's a joy to be able to work like that to kind of give everyone else give everyone's beautiful performances this sort of extra layer of this kind of you know it's holding something and and it's allowing it's allowing it to be as metaphorical as it is real and I think that's why film is so fun and why working with Linus is so fun because we're always looking to make something that could work as much as a silent film as one with dialogue and I say that as somebody who's like a maniac about scripts you know but at the same time if you can emotionally understand something just visually then that's just Mm. an unbelievably exciting thing I think that's that's the key with them. Were there any visual reference points, such as like Swedish films or certain European films, in in regards to the look of it? I think we 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 through the discussions, you know, like I kind of feel like I never really want to uh, look at specific films necessarily for a for the whole for the style of the whole film that way but lots of things came together in in the discussions i feel like we talked about you know the voyeurism of it uh, and about like hitchcock about also the silent movies the horror movies from the from from sort of a silent era and at the same time you know the the baroque paintings uh, which would be like caravaggio or, or gentileschi or these ones that depicted sort of 
things that oftentimes were horrible, but quite, quite pretty. And these are all related. And I don't think we nailed in on like one specific, um, you know, film. It was more like in the vein of Hitchcock, in the vein of uh, the silent uh, German expressionistic films from uh, horror movies or um, or um, uh, paintings in the vein of more perhaps uh, for, for certain scenes, more like the Baroque, but also like English uh, paint, painters, I think, like Gainsborough and these for other scenes. So it depends on which scenes we're talking about too, because we create mood, all of us sort of created mood boards um, to 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 sort of collaborate about where what what is the direction you know and and it was lovely with Susie Davis as well like her mood boards and uh, how she went you know expressionistic with her style and and what um, uh, Emerald had in mind and, and what she, her her mood boards were and and I tried to sort of work more with mood boards in terms of lighting and for the scene by scene or different scenes or exterior day when it's bright exterior day when it's uh, sad or evenings or so on so so sure there were inspiration from movies i think and but more like in a general in a general way but um definitely sort of ex uh, in i think everything came together with the whole thing with the vampirism and uh the one three three red ratio fits all of that, including things Emerald said about that she'd like it to feel like almost like you're peeking into a dollhouse kind of thing, and it felt like it wasn't really a cinema scope movie, and it needed to also be expressive. And the aspect ratio adds to the expression expressivity as well. And I think I fell in love with the one three three. I must say when we started composing for it, because it was a while ago. Uh, the TVs were square. And I think at that time you kind of didn't compose this way. This was more like classic cinema, silent movie compositions or painterly compositions. Where, And that was kind of, I guess, one of the challenges was to try to be economical with the, with the shots. So we didn't like shoot too much. We, we'd like it to be, Emerald really liked it to be sort of... Um, um, what do you call it, like um, economical, right? Like in terms of how can we tell this story in the most efficient way? And I think also the thing is about, you know, making a movie in a genre like this is that you kind of have to be in dialogue with the films that exist around it. Because I, I, I really kind of firmly believe for me is that films can't exist outside popular culture. They live in the culture. You know, all of us go to films and we have a pre-existing relationship with Jacob as an actor or Rosamond as an actress. We bring so much of the way that we feel um, to all of these different things. And so you can't make a gothic British country house movie without acknowledging the work of Merchant Ivory, of Peter Greenway, without acknowledging Barry Lyndon, without, you know, even up to a point looking at the work of kind of the sexy summer movie of Pasolini, of Bertolucci. Like, it's that's the thing about you know making film in general is that all of us all of us kind of have these make these connections all the time so a lot of a lot of the work that is done is to sort of acknowledge these things to say that these all exist in a, the same world but how do we subvert the the expectation of this film how do we take the most restrained genre and unrestrain it and and so you know 
it's just an ongoing conversation between all of us, you know, in every in every department all the time. And as Lena said, you know, it was just we all worked together very closely. You mentioned Peter Greenaway. I think the Cattons have been to that restaurant in The Cook, The Thief, The Wife and Her Lover. <laughs> I think they probably have. I mean, you know, what a... They may even own a portion of it. <laughs> he is. I mean, and The Draftsman's Contract as well, another just unbelievable film. Like, you know, he's really, he's tr- a true inspiration, Greenaway. What, what, a, what a remarkable filmmaker. And Joseph Losey, of course, I haven't even mentioned, my favourite. How long was this story with you? Was the screenplay all ready to go after you had completed Promising Young Woman? Oh, gosh, no, no, no. I couldn't, I can't really work like that. I, I, it's sort of one thing at a time. But I've been working on Saltburn for about seven years. Oh, so wow. I've been living in that house <laughs> with these people. I've had Oliver, you know, sitting beside me for a long, long time. And so in many ways, it's, it's a really, you know, it's kind of when I'm, when I'm ready to write it, it's because it's finished. And I think, no, it's, it certainly feels right to me now that this was the film I finished writing during COVID, you know, given that we weren't allowed to touch people. We were never in a more voyeuristic place, I think, psychologically. You know, we were forbidden from touching. We were forbidden from sharing fluids. <laughs> so it makes sense that this is the film that came out of that. <laughs> Emerald and Linus, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.